Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. From Mamma Mia, I'm Alfie Scott. This is The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. Late last week, India celebrated as it became the fourth country to land on the moon. Around 7 million people watched the YouTube live stream as the Chandrayaan 3 mission touched down on the moon's surface. Prime Minister Narendra Modi said that the success is a victory cry of a new India as he waved the country's flag on the broadcast. But this story is about much more than India touching down on the moon for the first time. It's also about where they chose to land the spacecraft and why. India is there to explore resources on the moon, and its landing raises a lot of questions about what those resources could be used for and who's going to be allowed to claim them in the future. Today, we're going to look at the moon, what's on it, and why space agencies around the world are racing to get there first. But first, your news headlines for Monday 28th. At least three US Marines have been killed after an aircraft carrying 23 people crashed in the Northern Territory. The aircraft was performing a training drill when it crashed around 9.30am on Sunday. Three Marines were confirmed deceased and five others have been transported to Royal Darwin Hospital in serious conditions. The hospital declared a code brown, which is the highest emergency response that can be activated at an Australian hospital as it prepared to receive more injured Marines. Speaking from Karatha, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said the ADF was working with its US partners to offer any assistance needed. Independent MP Allegra Spender has promised to keep tax reform at the front and centre of national debate, accusing the major parties of playing politics and not wanting to touch the issue. Spender is spearheading reform, saying that it's important to bring everyone to the table following this year's intergenerational report, highlighting how reliant Australia will become on income tax over the next 40 years. The Independent said that the reliance will become a real challenge and it would be an intergenerational tragedy for the government to rely on the income tax of young workers who are already hit with high hex debts and housing costs. An annual public health report has shown that every four hours an Australian is dying of a drug overdose, prompting calls for urgent action to battle the crisis. The report, produced by Pennington Institute, shows that there were over 2,200 drug-induced deaths in Australia in 2021, the majority of which were unintentional. Seven out of ten unintentional drug overdoses that year were men and Indigenous Australians were four times more likely to die under those circumstances than non-Indigenous Australians. Chief Executive of Pennington Institute John Ryan said the time to address the national crisis is now. A new report has found that Australia's real estate industry is the go-to sector for laundering dirty money, and an anti-corruption group are calling for more professions to report dodgy transactions. 
Transparency International Australia says a flow of dirty money into Australia could be pushing house prices up even higher, but the real estate sector disputes the claim. Anti-corruption advocates are backing change to force accountants, lawyers and real estate agents to be included in legislation that forces certain professions to report suspicious transactions to authorities. Transparency International Australia Chief Executive Clancy Moore said that Australia's existing anti-money laundering rules are among the weakest in the world. And retired Sydney Swan superstar Lance Buddy Franklin has completed a lap of honour during halftime of the AFL clash between the Swans and Melbourne at the SCG. Franklin announced his retirement with immediate effect on July 31 following a calf injury and fans embraced the opportunity to show him their appreciation. Last season, Franklin became the sixth player to reach 1,000 VFL or AFL goals, setting off wild scenes at the SCG. Swans coach John Longmire said that he's glad Franklin got to have the experience of the victory lap and that it meant a huge amount to the fans. That's your latest news headlines. In a moment, today's deep dive into ice on the moon and why it sparked the next great space race. Chandrayaan-3 is an unmanned mission that was launched by the Indian Space Research Organisation and late last week it touched down on the moon. India is the fourth country after the US, Russia and China to make it to the lunar surface. But even more impressively, India has managed to land on the south pole of the moon for the first time, which has an incredibly rough, treacherous surface that we can't see from Earth. So what is a spacecraft doing there? Chandrayaan-3 went to the South Pole with two robots. One of them is a lander called Vikram and the other is a rover called Pragyan, which is the Sanskrit word for wisdom. There are a couple of reasons that the mission was launched. Firstly, the lander, rover and the propulsion unit that got them to the moon will be studying a bunch of different things, including the moon's orbit and its atmosphere. Another reason the mission was launched was nationalistic, because Modi's government is keen to prove that India has a place among the global elite who have achieved the same feat. Then there's a third reason. Pragyan the rover is going to spend the next two weeks roaming around the moon's surface, taking pictures and conducting experiments on the surface to try and look at what's there. And what it's looking for specifically is ice. It might sound strange, but moon ice is a very big deal, and it's actually sparked a bit of a space race as agencies around the world try to figure out where it is on the moon and exactly how much there is. In fact, India's spacecraft landing comes just days after a Russian mission, which was also targeting the south pole of the moon, spun out of control and crashed. But it's not just Russia who are gunning to join India at the south pole of the moon. The US space agency NASA have plans to send astronauts there in the next few years. China plans to send their own astronauts there by the end of the decade. Japan is interested. And the European Space Agency and a handful of private companies are building robotic landers of their own to make the same journey. So why are countries investing so much money in trying to find ice on the moon? And if it is there, who gets to control it? 
Professor Andrew Dempster is the director of the Australian Centre for Space Engineering Research in the School of Electrical Engineering and Telecommunications at the University of New South Wales. That's a mouthful. But in other words, he's the perfect person to ask questions about mining moon resources. Professor Dempster, can you just explain for the people who, like me, have very little idea about space exploration, just how big a deal it is that India has landed on the South Pole of the Moon? Yeah, the reason the South Pole of the Moon is interesting is because they expect to find water there, a fair bit of water. The reason that they expect water to be there is that there are craters there, that as the moon rotates, the craters never see the sun. So that's why we're looking at the poles. And so they have remained very cold and frozen for a long time. And some people say that these could be the coldest places in the solar system. They haven't seen the sun for a billion years or something. And any water that's on the moon, people think that it migrates from the meteor impacts. And once they get into these craters, there's no way for them to be unfrozen again. And so the water that we expect to find on the moon is going to be at the poles. So everyone is interested in the poles, not just India, but we saw the Russians fail last week. The Artemis missions from the US are based around the South Pole, and there does seem now to be a genuine space race on again, and so there are geopolitical implications. So there are several reasons why the Indian landing is important. One is that it ramps up this space race. You know, India has joined but certainly the US and China are the main races and India is joining the race. The fact that they've done it so cheaply is a real lesson for everybody. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the surface at the South Pole of the Moon is? Because as far as I've read, it seems quite difficult to land anything there. There are a number of difficulties. One is that getting the orbits right is tricky because when you're launching from Earth, it's easier to go around the equator. The other problem, if you look at the surface of the South Pole and compare it to the North Pole, it's more rugged. So if you're going to put a rover down there, it's going to need to be able to cope with steeper terrain. These craters, you know, they're extremely cold, minus 170 degrees Celsius, temperatures that don't exist on Earth. Speaking about the exploration for ice, can you talk to me about what sort of form would you find ice on the moon? I mean, is it going to be in big frozen lakes? Like, what are we expecting? Okay, so we did this just Tuesday, just gone. We ran an event in Perth called the Off-Earth Mining Forum, where we had a geologist from Colorado School of Mines in the US talking about the different ways that ice or water manifests within the rocks. There is no lake or ice rink-type flat surface. It's in the rock, so it needs to be extracted, which is why we were talking about mining, because it's the mining techniques that will need to be used to extract water from that rock. Now, see, the problem is on the moon, because there's no atmosphere, water cannot exist in liquid form. If the ice heats up, it goes straight to the gas form. It's called subliming. There's no liquid phase between solid and gas. So that presents a problem, you know, when you're trying to process it and store it and that sort of thing on the moon. And assuming that countries can actually end up maybe processing that ice, like you say, what would it be used for? Why do people care so much that there might be ice in these craters? So various countries are talking about setting up colonies on the moon and 
trying to keep people there on an ongoing basis. Now, we use water for a lot of things. I mean, the first thing people think about is, oh, you will drink it, right? But water is used for a lot of chemical processes. It would be used for any sort of agriculture that we attempt up there. And one of the key things that people are thinking about is that if you took the water and split it into hydrogen and oxygen, then that is a form of rocket fuel. You can use the hydrogen as the fuel and oxidize it with the oxygen that you extract. Now, there's an ongoing debate about whether that's the best way to do things or whether you should use a different fuel. And, you know, to set up the economics of all this is also really complex. So people are just kicking around all these different ideas, but it looks like water really is one of the first things that we can use on the moon. So you're talking about moon settlements. What would people actually be doing there? Why are countries interested in settling people permanently or at least semi-permanently on the moon? I think to some extent that depends who you ask. As an outside observer of this space race that's happening, you might think that it's just superficial chest beating, that people want to be first there. I think if you would talk to Chinese people or US people that are actually doing it, they probably see it in terms of colonization, expanding their domain. And that's part of why the geopolitics is becoming so serious about it. In the treaties that the US signed, the Artemis Accords, they have this idea of safety zones. So if you land something somewhere, then someone else can't land within a certain area around you. And that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of dust on the moon and the dust is very destructive. It's sharp and it's got static electricity, which makes it adhere to things. So you really do want other people to stay away. If you're there, you're effectively claiming land. So it could look like a land grab. You know, All of those arguments come into play. Are there any laws or international treaties to say that people shouldn't be allowed to just claim land on the moon? Yes. Now, Australia is a signatory to two sets of agreements to do with the moon. One is called the Moon Agreement. The Moon Agreement says that anything on the moon should only really be exploited for the benefit of all mankind. But I've had a PhD student sort of look into what that really means. And trying to do something on the moon that benefits all mankind or can be measurably said to do that is actually really quite hard. And it sort of doesn't make economic sense either. Another thing, though, is that the way some of these treaties are worded, they say, oh, yes, this rock is the property of all mankind in situ. But then if you move it, then it's not in situ anymore. So does that mean it's not the property of all mankind? There's sort of ambiguities in the agreements. Plus, a lot of these international treaties to do with space have never been tested and there's no one to enforce them. There's all sorts of difficulties on the legal side. And what we're hoping is that it won't be the Wild West out there, but international law is so slow moving that there could be problems. I mean, it's not just ice that's a resource of interest in space, right? Like there have been news stories for a while about certain metals being on asteroids and things like that. Do you think that it's the case that these resources could just end up in the hands of whoever gets there first? Yes, I think the Wild West scenario does play out in that way. But it's very, very hard to make an economic case that says, we go and collect metals, say, in space and bring them back to Earth. Things would have to get very dire down here before you could make a business case to do that. There are also arguments, you know, and I've seen some statistics that say that if the future has all of these renewable technologies, the wind turbines and solar cells and batteries and so on, there will be certain minerals that we'll run out of. 
And so that business case, maybe 20, 30 years down the track, might start to make more sense, but it doesn't make a lot of sense now. Just finally, do you mind walking me through how the moon could potentially be used as a sort of way station for further exploration into space if there is ice found on its surface? That is one of the key arguments that people are making about the moon and why we might want to go there now is people really have their eyes on Mars for a number of reasons. I mean, NASA's scientific interest in Mars is that life may exist there or at least the conditions that cause life to happen on Earth. It's easier to lift things from the moon because its gravity well is, you know, it's a smaller object. So it's easier to lift things up and down from the moon. So if you had a station orbiting the moon that had hydrogen there or maybe oxygen then if you were able to lift it up and down from the moon, then you could launch from Earth, collect that material from around the moon, and then continue on your way to Mars. And sort of as a business case, that is a much easier case to make than many other arguments that people are making. The Quickie is produced by myself, Elfie Scott, and our executive producer, Callie Borg, with audio production by Tom Lyon. 